The day is too hot to be considered comfortable. I walk up the stone steps to the front door of the Oakwood nursing home, papers clutched in my hand. I'm here from the university, I tell the woman on the desk, to read to the residents. Without giving me a glance, she points her perfectly manicured hands down the corridor. I count the rooms as I go, ducking into 106. An old man is sitting out on his balcony, a carer helping him eat. I introduce myself and sit down opposite him. I'm not sure he's lucid enough to understand, but it is what I'm here to do, so I flatten the papers out on my lap and begin. 2262. I was in the final year of university. Time travel was old hat by that time. It was not deemed manageable for nine billion people to have free reign of the past, so it had been reserved for final year students. I had worked hard for the top spot, so I could have five jumps instead of the standard four. The assignment was simple. Pick a time period and critically analyze the culture of the day. Easy. Do not speak to anyone. Do not try and change anything. Do not get involved in any politics. Everson, I'm talking to you, Mr. Bloys, our short and ill-tempered history master had told us. And no, you can't kill Hitler. <laughs> How we had laughed. At lunch, we spoke over each other as we laid out our plans. I think I'll do my essay on the French Revolution, Emmett Everson had said as he chewed on a peach. I'm going to ancient Greece piped up Leonie Gray. What about you, Alice? Rowan Webb had asked me. A grin spread over my face. 1984. Something about the 1980s had always fascinated me. I had pored over history books, learning about the miners' strikes, Margaret Thatcher, and, oh, the clothes. My friends had wanted to attend grand coronations, dance in the Roaring Twenties, or walk with the Egyptians. Not me. What happened in 1984? asked Emmett, his pudgy face screwed quite ungainly. Life. The day of the jump, my class gathered in the main hall. The myriad of costumes made for quite a sight. Some in togas, some in camouflage. Jerry Baitlin was dressed like a gladiator. I had swept my crimped hair to the side and managed to buy some replica high-top boots. I wore red, high-waisted, three-quarter-length trousers and a garish yellow off-the-shoulder shirt that was littered with geometric shapes. I looked amazing. I strapped the cuff-like device to my wrist as Mr. Bloys told us, Punch in the numbers on the keypad. Wait for the light to go green. On return, the device will flash orange and beep three times before you are pulled back. You have six hours. The clock struck twelve, and we all eagerly entered our designated years. I blinked, and in a moment, I was in the middle of a busy highway. Cars whipped past me as I fought to keep my balance. I ran to the side, breathing hard. Steadying myself, I looked closer at the automobiles. They seemed a little wrong. Did they have Triumph Roadsters in 1984? I walked briskly, turning left into a street full of shops. The fashion seemed dated. I wanted the famed Oxford Street, though there could be a degree of error. It was time travel, after all. Shaking my head, I tried to focus. People had begun to gawk. Eager to get off the street, I beelined for the nearest building, an old indoor market. It was two-storied, with a glass roof casting sunlight down over the row of shops. 
The wrought iron railings of the upper balcony were covered in thick green Christmas decorations, and a large tree sat in the centre of the market. More stairs followed as I pushed through the throngs, and I ducked into a glass-fronted café. In my haste, I walked straight into the server, making him tip his tray down himself. Coffee and two chocolate eclairs cascaded down our legs. I looked up at his face and was lost in his apologies. His accent was thick and his eyes a brilliant green. His black curls were cut smartly. Taking my hand, he led me to a vacant table. Are you okay? he asked, offering me a worn tea towel to wipe the coffee from my legs. I knew I couldn't talk to him, so I just politely nodded, setting my mouth to a thin line. Looking around, I saw the café was empty. Two people sat perched on the other side of the large window, though their afternoon tea now had to be redone. A peeling poster was haphazardly stuck to the side of the counter. Celebrate New Year's 1949 at the Eagle Café. 1949? What year is it? I asked the man before I could stop myself. His eyes narrowed as he laughed. 1948, miss. I rubbed my forehead and sighed deeply. In my eagerness, I must have got the last two numbers the wrong way round. This was frustrating. It certainly explained the stairs. At least I had started with one more visit than my cohort. Now we would be on equal footing. When I stopped wallowing, the man, who introduced himself as Luca Ricci, brought over two cups of hot chocolate. I had no means to pay, but he told me it was on the house for tipping the tray, though, in truth, that had been my fault. We laughed heartily as we swapped stories of family and life, though mine were obviously muted. He told me he was from Italy. His mother had moved to England during the war after his father had been killed. As the device on my wrist beeped and I excused myself, he asked me would I meet him again. I nodded, though I had no intention of ever returning to 1948. And, technically, that was true, because the next time I jumped... I went to 1949. My classmates had bragged about witnessing Cleopatra or King Henry VIII in action, but I was lost in daydreams of grey London and a little cafe in the East End. My heart swooped when I saw him, and we had hot chocolate on the bank of the Thames. In 1950, he took me dancing on my birthday. I promised I would see him on Christmas Eve. He was taking me to the Ritz. As I jumped, Rain pounded the pavement so hard it rebounded up the legs of the mindless masses making their way home. Crossing the street, I turned into the Emporium. It looked different. Must have had a coat of paint over the summer. The market inside was busy, with people pouring over stalls and through shops for the perfect festive gifts. I searched the teeming tea shop for Luca. I spied a spot at an empty table and slid into the booth. Tapping the table mindlessly, I hardly noticed the older man dropping into the seat opposite me. "'Oh, I'm sorry,' I said to him, noticing the two steaming mugs in his hands. "'I'm waiting for a friend.' Then I noticed his eyes. Bright green. Luca's father, maybe, though he told me he was long dead. And then realization crashed over me. Luca offered me the saddest of smiles. The calendar, behind his head, read 1988. Sorry I'm late, I murmur. We sat there for hours, 
long after the last customer had left. He told me about his life. He had married, eventually, and his daughters helped him in the cafe. He pointed them out. Two beautiful girls around my age. They both had his eyes. He showed me photos of his grandchildren. My heart was heavy. Grief for what could have been gripped me. I I could go back. I had one more jump left. I could go to 1950, unclip the device, and live a long and happy life with the man in front of me. But then the people he loved would not exist. His daughters and grandchildren would never be born. I was not prepared to ask that of him. As the device on my wrist beeped, Luca gripped my hand. Will I see you again? he asked, whispering something in my ear as I faded. I look up and see he is listening as best he can. The carer, Janine, is watching me, patiently waiting for more. That's all of it, I smile at her. I lean in, dropping a kiss onto his cheek. A tear escapes me. Tiamo, I whisper, as the twinkle in his old green eyes extinguishes. Janine rushes to him, her fingers seeking out a pulse on his wrist. As she turns to ask me to get help, there is nothing more than the echo of the last beep left behind.